what this established then was a public education system of uh, religiously integrated secular content. And so that uh, we had then Hoosiers of every different faith perspective learning to live together and be classmates and teammates and friends and then be able to go on as citizens, no matter our profound differences in matters of religion, yet could we come together in a common cause of democracy. You're listening to Indianapolis business and community leader Chris Douglas, who joins me for a wide-ranging conversation on the state of American democracy, protection of civil rights, and even the federal tax code on this episode of Michael Loves Indy. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Michael Loves Indy. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Chris Douglas, a person that I have come to admire as a leader and a thinker and overall as a human being. If you've followed Indiana politics, you most likely know a little bit about Chris Douglas. He's been very successful in business and in political advocacy, a little bit about his background. He's an eighth-generation Hoosier, bachelor's from Princeton University, MBA from the Wharton School of Business at University of Pennsylvania. He's a decorated U.S. Air Force officer. He's fluent in Mandarin Chinese, and we get into that. But Chris is also known for his advocacy for LGBTQ people and advocacy within the Republican Party. And we get into that, what motivated him to be a positive influence for changing the system, for improving the dialogue. And one of the things I most admire about Chris is he is not afraid to take on subjects that are highly complex or difficult to talk about, but do so in a way that is very thoughtful, that is rooted in history, and also has a great deal of empathy. And if you've listened to this show, you know that I just sit with people that I want to have conversations with and hit record, and I do not censor people. So Chris does not shy away from his views on the state of American democracy, the state of public education, and uh, other issues where he believes we need change. Um, Hope you enjoy it. It's a wide-ranging conversation. We also get into this fascinating project that Chris has invested a lot of time into about how the United States could create a better federal tax code. Um, I do highly recommend that you check out his bio and his business, C.H. Douglas and Gray Wealth Management, and and you can find out more about Chris Douglas at chdouglas.com. Very much enjoyed this conversation. It will very likely inspire a part two. So please enjoy this conversation with Chris Douglas. Thank you for taking the time. We are at your the offices of C.H. Douglas and Gray, um, just north of Broad Ripple. Do you consider it in Broad Ripple? Uh, just north of Broad Ripple is good. Broad yeah. Ripple is good, too. Yeah, it's it's um, adjacent to a lot of new development. And uh, for those of you listening who aren't from Indianapolis, uh, you should definitely visit the Broad Ripple neighborhood. Chris, I've, I've been looking forward to this for a long time because um, uh, I'm not just saying this. You're one of the most interesting people I've ever met. And um, just for background, for people listening, Chris Douglas is someone who is well-known in Indianapolis, somewhat of a fixture in local and state politics, wearing a lot of different hats, um, writing a lot. But my, as I shared this with you before. Um, when I, I moved here about 20 years ago, and then I was working for Governor Mitch Daniels at the time, and I remember reading your, your regular columns, and I was like, this guy just puts it out there and just does not care. You know, at that, at that time you were definitely writing, you know, from a, from a, um, what you would say a Republican and or free market perspective, but you always, you always were, um, writing about things against the predominant narrative. And I know you're someone who's passionate about history. So it was always grounded in history. And, uh, I guess my first question before we get into it is, can you talk a little bit about your, you know, your upbringing in Indianapolis and especially maybe early experiences that would have predicted, you know, that we, you know, that you would get to where you are today? Well, that's interesting. i Born and raised here in Indianapolis in an environment that uh, I only later could fully appreciate, and that was literally 
leave it to Beaver. It was Ward and June Cleaver, Jack and Connie Douglas, uh, mild-mannered, mutually respectful, never a word in the household said against anyone uh, for any reason based on race, religion, etc. The... uh, the imperative was that if you had, if you couldn't say something nice about somebody, you just didn't say it. And so, uh, uh, an environment in which uh, there was just great respect for other people, uh, whether it was the kids or it was the neighbors or or people in the community, and uh, but lots of encouragement as well, and and leadership by example, and a strong base case of it, of integrity. That uh, that uh, it was the, the kind of environment that if you found a ten dollar, if you saw a ten dollar bill on a floor somewhere, your first job was to find out, figure out if you could learn who it belonged to. Wow! <laughs> and so, um, uh, and then I'd also say that that it was it was a faith based household that didn't talk about faith but attended uh, a Methodist church uh, where the lessons were all about how we ought to treat each other and then uh, uh, as I think about it uh, the Boy Scouts I was a Boy Scout yeah and uh, the Boy Scouts really in their messaging um, really impressed upon you the the need for courage and integrity and compassion, and uh, uh, I remember now that we would receive these little magazines that were associated with the Boy Scouts, where there would always be a story in it, some kind of a cartoon in it, of a real story. And very often, it was a it was somebody that was taking issue with what their peers were doing, and uh, was setting off on their own. Yeah. And so the idea that you wouldn't that you wouldn't do what you felt was right, uh, that was out uh that was out of the question wow you you do not come across as an elitist at all you're a very accessible person and yet you're um you know you have princeton pedigree and wharton so i'm going to make an assumption that your family really pushed education and that was a high priority well no i think it was again it was just a very 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 fortunate example it was uh my grandparents were all college educated and uh, some of my great grandparents were college educated, and so it was just an assumption. Wow! And uh, the assumption was that uh, that you'd go from high school, elementary school to, to to junior high to high school, and on to college, and and on to professional school for that matter, yeah. because that's just what you saw all around you. Dad yeah. was an attorney, and mom had uh, had been a teacher, and uh, so their friends were. Very, very similar. You, um, I'm, I'm skipping ahead, but um, at Princeton, you've shared with me that you focused on Asian studies, you know, among other things. Were there, and um, this is a more, a more general question, but um, were there experiences that you had growing up that sort of sparked that fascination with Asian studies or other, you know, other disciplines? Well, where it came from was that uh, I had decided that uh, I needed to figure out how to finance whatever school I was going to go to. And uh, uh, Dad had gone into the Air Force. Um, uh, My brother had uh, been accepted to the Naval Academy and had gone to a a different school because he wanted to become a doctor, and at that time there was no real path. And it became clear to me that whatever path I wanted to go on, I needed to figure out how to finance it. And so uh, uh, I applied to all of the militaries, and uh, uh, received ROTC scholarships from each of the militaries. And the one that I received, and then I got my admissions, and so the idea was to pair the right military with the right school. Yeah. And so I received a scholarship from the Air Force for economics. Nice. And uh, so uh, that was possible at Princeton to, to go into the Air Force. Well, at the same time, I thought, that's awful. If, if uh, I go into the Air Force as an economics major, they're going to make me an accounting and finance officer or something, and that, that'd be, I, that just sounded horribly dull. <laughs> and so in 1983 then, our, my senior year, Deng Xiaoping was on the cover of Time magazine as that. man of the year. And uh, 
China was opening, and I had read an account uh, of America's involvement in China during World War II that really opened my eyes as to what one could do in the military. And so I thought, uh, if I start studying Chinese, then it will, that will put me in a more interesting realm within the military. And so um, uh, I began doing that, and then uh, 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 the Air Force then also began to recognize the importance of China and opened up uh, scholarships for Chinese language study, and I received the first one because I was already studying it. And uh, so then that became my scholarship, was to study so Chinese. Mandarin, yes. primarily? Yeah. yeah. So okay. I spent a lot of time in the East Asian Studies Department at, at Princeton. No kidding. And then did, so if I'm, so I, I don't know if I share this with you. My, my late father was a, a naval officer for 10 years, then reservist for 20. And I have three younger, one, one brother went to Annapolis, two were Navy ROTC and served as officers. And so at that time... Um, it was the, usually a five-year commitment. So, what was the what was the commitment four to the years. Air Force? It was four years four at years, the time. Okay, right. okay. Right. And then, did that take you to did that take you overseas? Your commitment to the Air well, Force? Well, that's the uh, of course. This then was one of a, a significant formative experience. The Air Force having sent me to a very expensive school to Chinese. Uh, then uh, I became an intelligence officer, which I anticipated, and uh, then the Air Force sent me to a job that had nothing whatsoever to do with Asia or Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they sent me to Alaska, which was fine. Alaska was a beautiful place, and I lived there for three years. But I also thought, uh, I, I, I can't allow uh, my career to be in the hands of people who've never met me. And so uh, the Cold that, War was ending, and I thought I need to get out. Serving as an intelligence officer, was there were there experiences that could have predicted that you would make a career in finance? Boy, uh, not at all. Okay. Not at all. Uh, my... Uh, thought process was that uh, we need manufacturing, and uh, even in the even in the '80s, and, and when I was in school, and shortly after I graduated, I thought, uh, you know, I've got all these classmates with these as you these highfalutin degrees, who um, doctors and lawyers and consultants and artists and academics, and I thought, who among these people is actually going to be in a position to offer anybody a job? And I thought, uh, we really need, uh, our nation's talent really needs to be going into to business. And uh, because business is uh, an arena that you can offer productive lives to others. And uh, so it was a bit of a calling. And uh, then we saw uh, 1992, we saw uh, the LA, with 91 or 92, the LA riots. Yep. And I thought, uh, uh, even more so. Uh, so uh, that took me to business school with the idea of coming back to Indiana and uh, working for a manufacturer based here in Indiana and representing them in uh, China and, and uh, Taiwan and Korea, which I then did. So uh, uh, then uh, I also came to understand that I was gay, and uh, uh, I thought uh, I need to confront that and uh, uh, in coming out, then uh, I was fired from that position, uh, as I did confront Gee. it. So a that took different, me different time. <laughs> so that took me to yeah. uh, uh, whatever would put food on the table. Yes. And uh, uh, after some other entrepreneurial ventures, I really concluded that the right environment for me was a partnership environment, and. Uh, uh, that an, totally independent, not working for somebody else, and that I had the credentials as a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania yeah. to manage money, and uh, uh, so that was the path. It was I've a never, path to independence. Was that a traumatic transition period? And that's a. It's probably. That, I know that's, that's probably a question that you could probably. It's, it's your. It's well, your life. You could talk about all day, but, but it, it's just. I've never. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't realize it, this chapter. Yeah, it was. Uh, I knew it was going to be. I knew that, uh, uh, you know, I'd returned to Indiana I'm, uh, with a love for the state and my, my family, and and uh, I had felt that uh, um, I was beginning to question my integrity as I realized I was gay and uh, that I was allowing a barrier to fall between me and my family and friends and uh, that I needed to do something about that. 
And I also thought, well, here I'm, I've got two Ivy League degrees. I'm a decorated military veteran, and uh, I've got the love of family. And, and if uh, I can't come out and survive in Indiana, yeah. who can? Right. And so I really felt a responsibility to. Yeah. But I also knew that uh, that would put me on a completely different path. And uh, so when I was fired, uh, you know, I had uh, agreed to, uh, you know, I came out really in a very proactive way by founding the Indiana chapter of the Log Cabin Republicans in 1996, when yes. there was really no other, you know, the, the Democrats actually didn't have an organization at the time. That's right. And I felt uh, the gay community needed to be projecting ourselves and uh, out into the community and helping the world to understand us. So I characterized that as uh, gay outreach to Republicans, not Republican outreach to gays. Interesting. And uh, so I was very well uh, communicated and, and coordinated with other folks in the community as, as I said about my task. And you're coming from an intellectual base of, now, now I'm, 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 I'm taking liberties because I might remember it right. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're coming from an intellectual base of a um, free market, you know, kind of um, economic freedom, religious freedom, personal freedom, and that in this this idea of kind of taking the gay community to the Republicans. At least that's how I saw. Did, am I am I close, or was there a, a different? No, I would say not. Okay, in that uh, uh, I felt that. Um, it, it, I, I guess in saying taking the gay community to the Republicans, it, it is saying at least making sure that the Republicans understood the gay community. Yes. And uh, um, let's see, but you asked, this is good kind for economic, economic freedom. Yeah, know, I didn't freedom. have a strong opinion, ex except I knew that uh, sort of tribally I was Republican. I'd been raised in a Republican household that tended to be uh, business-oriented uh, in outlook, and uh, uh, I'm not sure free market is cr quite the expression, but certainly free enterprise. Yes. And the difference is that we don't have a free market. We've never had a free market. That's it's right. a ridiculous concept. Uh, uh, that's total chaos. Right. Uh, anarchy. It's yeah. anarchy. Right. It's anarchy. But free enterprise, just like free individuals in a free society, uh, uh, there are, um, uh, we still have to follow the laws and the, tr the traffic lights, and, and, uh, but we are free individuals, we, uh, and we're not government-owned. <laughs> uh, uh, and so private uh, uh, free enterprise operating within the context of a uh, democratically governed society. Yeah. Was there, I'm assuming, there had to be something driving your... Um, political work and your writing and things like that because you're you're running a successful business in parallel and I'm interested to know kind of what was behind that were you thinking of potentially running for office someday was it that was the idea of recruiting candidates or was it um, uh, just influencing the dialogue or was it all of the above I think it was influencing the dialogue it, it is funny when I reflect on the people in high office these in, 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 that have occupied high office that, that uh, have asked me, you know, 10 years, 20 years ago, when are you running for office? Because <laughs> right. uh, your name would get mentioned. I, like any time there is an opening, I, I know, and, you know, there, your name would get uh, and still does get mentioned frequently. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, I think that uh, running an independent business, so first of all, Necessity, the mother of invention. I had to make a living. And business, by operating a, a business, that meant that it could be an independent living. And having been fired uh, for attempting to make change as a, as a gay Hoosier, the only way of making that meaningful was to actually affect change. Yeah, And so... That meant continuing to be very, very vocal, or I had wasted a career. Wow. So uh, uh, that meant that uh, my being vocal was a foundation of the business. Yeah. And uh, so for a long time, I'd characterize it as, as the business supported me, but I didn't support the business because I was so heavily engaged in the community. 
And uh, by the time of one of the marriage amendment fights, 2007, uh, uh, I was exhausted and uh, saw a business opportunity in addition to to what we'd been doing and and turned to face that. And uh, uh, then really uh, a business began to grow and do well. Uh, But that business, the foundation of that business has always been in my at least for me, in speaking my mind. Absolutely. And uh, uh, so that having run a business, you know, it's like, first of all, one has credibility for having started and run a successful business. It's it's hard. (laughs) It's hard to do it with integrity in this world. And uh, uh, so getting that done and doing it well with time, that contributes to credibility. The fact that we are managing uh, folks' financial lives that provides immense insight into uh, household finances and how they operate. Running a business and employing people and providing benefits, that provides immense insight. Then our job ultimately with regard to investments is to be able to understand, have to understand the economy. So what this business ultimately amounts to then is a little think tank. It's a little constant laboratory. And it's, it, it provides insights that I think a lot of academics don't have. Yeah, totally. <laughs> a lot of people who want to affect change don't have because they don't understand so much of, uh, of the way other people think and how business in particular thinks. Yeah. This, sorry, this is filling in gaps that uh-huh. I know, like in your life. Because here, here's, here's something, and this, this could be right, this could be on track, it could not, because... Ever since I've known you, um, you you will engage in dialogue. Maybe it's through your writing. Maybe it's through your political activity. Um, what am I trying to say? Uh, subjects that are often controversial or hard to talk about, but you, since I've known you, exude a positive energy, even so. Hmm. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. it, like you're, you're bringing, oftentimes you're bringing to the table ideas that can make some people uncomfortable or they're hard to talk about things we need to confront. We'll talk about um, the press conference that became national where you stepped in and uh, saved that press conference um, in, uh, in 2015, you know, but again, it's like, it's this, um, um, I, I guess that's my, you know, it's like, I mean that as a compliment, but I would say, where do you, th- where do you think that comes from? Like you, you bring confrontational and, and, and um, subjects to the table, but you're not, you're not in a way that is, um, you, but in a way that you're trying to bring people in. Where do you suppose you get that? Yeah, I, maybe it is dad being an attorney. Uh, it's that uh, uh, no matter what position you took in the house, uh, you heard what the other side might be, yeah. And uh, so uh, then I think that uh, that uh, I think it's very con- consistent with what we were hearing at the pew- in the pews in the Methodist Church. Yeah. It was it was uh, thinking about uh, the good of others and and uh, and respecting uh, the beliefs of others. Uh, you shared you shared earlier before I hit record mm-hmm. uh, something about your study of Asian cultures and you're always conscious they've made you conscious of in, in some other cultures the importance of saving face right so and, I think there, I wonder if that yeah there, there's sort of two things the first is the tribal aspect and that is uh, uh, having been born and raised in in well there's we're, we're all in so many different tribes and so uh, uh, as I observed the, the studies out of business school show that people, uh, process information on a tribal basis, and and before people will start hearing what you have to say, you have to have a tribal connection to them or establish it, and so that's why a a salesman will go in and you know uh, say to a prospect, so do you play golf? And uh, you know they'll chat around, no, no, you do play tennis, and they'll fish around, and then they'll find some commonality, then they can discuss that, and then business starts to flow. That's right. So. Uh, uh, being one with other, finding ways of being one with other people is important to helping them to uh, move on a topic yeah. and appreciate you and, and, and understand your positions, or at least hear your positions. 
But then your reference is, yeah, I, it's I spent a lot of time in in uh, the study of Asia and in Asia, and I think there's sort of a, a two significant takeaways. The, the first, uh, the Asians speak, whether it's Japan or China uh, or Korea, speak very much about face and the importance of preserving face and not losing face, and therefore they calculate a lot about... Um, uh, how to provide the counterparty with a face-saving way, face way of getting to a point. And uh, so I think that face is every bit as important here. We're just not trained in it. We don't talk about it. But I think it's, it, it is also essential. It's yeah. how, how do you help people along? But the other thing, the other thing uh, takeaway from that uh, Asian uh, experience was, you know, you'd see these artworks of remote mountains uh and down in in some little aspect of that painting you might see a, a little pavilion with a scholar and uh, those forms of painting were famous uh and they very often followed the path of some mandarin from uh, the imperial government having fallen out of favor and then going off into the wilderness to live alone and paint or write poetry so that uh, that has always been an out for me. It's 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 look. We're going to say what we think needs to be said, and uh, let the chips fall where they may. And if that means that uh, that uh, I'm never anything more than a small part in a little picture off uh, 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 in nature, so be it. Wow. Well. Speaking of which, this 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 inspires some questions I've wanted to ask you. It's almost you could call, we could call this a segment. Difficult topics with Chris Douglas. Number number one, number one. Because again, what one one thing that I'm I always enjoy talking with you because you've you've consistently got a point of view, and it's not the 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 MSNBC or Fox News or anything. It's nothing like that. No, you and to, just today, I just you know we were just kind of reflecting about how tribal our politics has become. And you've got some kind of anti-establishment views on the education system and how the the in America, but specifically in Indiana, on how the our, edu our public education system could be if we were honoring sort of our, our commitment, um, you know, you, you've said to the Constitution, could be a really important tool in... Uh, 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 preventing some of this tribal thinking. Did I get that right? I'm going to invite. Yes, you. and not not only could it be, but it has been. It is uh, that that so to to we'll say inform anybody that may be listening. The, while education is not really specifically listed in the federal constitution, and while other states may have treated the topic differently, how Indiana historically by our values has treated it education could not be more clear nor more explicitly laid out in our state constitution. And the constitution of the state of Indiana of 1816, and uh, superseded in 1851, I think, but that, uh, in 1816, uh, the legislature was instructed as soon as practicable to establish a gradated system of education up to and including university that would be gratis and accessible to all. That was the the Constitution of 1816, and how is it this to be paid for? Well, uh, ultimately taxes, and ultimately people of means paying for the education of people without means. And so I think the sense of mutual, that first of all, the importance of education as uh, essential to the ability of people to participate equally in democracy uh, was thoroughly understood and discussed, and uh, uh, because in a, in a world of thousands of different perspectives of religion or what have you, or, or civics or what, you know, American democratic values aren't just going to pop up without uh, uh, good education uh, and uh, binding us together. Then the other thing that was so important about Indiana's model for education was also that because of the, I think, faith perspectives of so many of, in the founding of our state, there was a strong uh, sense that nobody had any business telling anybody else what to believe in matters of faith. And uh, our Constitution spells that in, 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 
as the expression is, six ways from Sunday, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, we, government will have no preference in matters of religion. Uh, no, religion will not be criteria for any office of public trust or profit. Nobody will be coerced into the, into the support of any ministries against our conscience. No uh, money will go from our treasury to religious institutions. And all of those today... So what, 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 the, what this established then was a, a public education system of uh, religiously integrated secular content. And so that uh, we had then Hoosiers of every different faith perspective uh, learning to live together and be classmates and teammates and friends and then be able to go on as citizens, no matter our profound differences in matters of religion, uh, yet could we come together in a common cause of democracy. And uh, that, I think, was incredibly successful. Incredibly successful. You only have to look at Europe, where uh, 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 Protestants and Catholics together murdered millions upon millions of Jews, or uh, Northern Ireland, where uh, Protestants and Catholics still go after each other, let alone uh, the Middle East, where it's just a it's just a, a grab bag of mutual hostilities. Here in Indiana, we have this immense diversity of strong faiths living together in peace. <laughs> Yes. And that, I think, is completely a product of our uh, uh, constitutionally established... And you're very, you're very concerned that we're moving away from that and we're not, we're not, uh, I think, we're not committed to it. Yes, right? I think yeah. that, uh, I think, and I regret to say, I think the Republican leadership in this state has abandoned the Constitution of the state of Indiana and has become uh, anti-constitutional, at least in this regard. It is... Uh, uh, we are now all of us being taxed to support faiths, no matter how abhorrent those faiths may be to us. How, how could uh, how could the state government, particularly Republican Party, move back in the right direction in your in your view? Well, then? this is I, I I think first of all that we do have as Hoosiers a lot of common ground, and I think some things just by opening our eyes we can get there and, and a great example is as you've referenced uh, uh, rifra in 2015 the attempt was to pass a law the effect of which really was to empower businesses across the state even in towns and cities that had human rights ordinances protecting the lgbt community from discrimination this legislation would have empowered businesses no matter where to discriminate against the LGBT community. And Including, broadly speaking, and this was the consensus view of the, the business community, and just to add, in terms of employment, housing, right. public facilities, very, very, very broad right. memory serves. Right, yeah. and fundamental to existence. And uh, the state rose up against it. And I think that... Uh, I think that that was a big surprise to the political establishment because I think so many Hoosiers very quietly are very decent and tolerant people and sort of let the world function until suddenly the world goes in a direction that we don't like. Yeah, and I w- it, is so, it is so interesting, you know, with Hoosiers, um, all the things I think that you and I appreciate and then maybe <laughs> are rail against, but it's like... Um, Hoosiers don't like to be embarrassed. Yeah, and, I, and that week, <laughs> the week of Riff, they're embarrassed. I want, I want, I'm going to ask. But you, I want to just yeah, comment. Yeah, so, yeah. what we found so offensive in what uh, was being attempted with regard to businesses, we are now fully funding with tax dollars in education. Interesting, and that is schools that flagrantly discriminate against the not just against the LGBT community, but against women. It, it's just uh, uh, the discrimination is inherent to what they're doing and what they're inculcating. The um, the uh, RFRA. Uh, so I I do want to ask you to expand because this I we kind of knew each other then, but uh, but that morning that our organization and a coalition had organized an effort. Now the damage had been done, and looking back, I wish we had mobilized it much earlier. But we, it was what it was. The uh, um, legislature passed the RIFRA. Um, then Governor Mike Pence signed it. There's a photo of Mike Pence with various leaders, including religious leaders, that became kind of infamous. Um, there is an uprising with the business community, along with tourism, feeling that the law um, did what you just explained would allow um, broad 
um, uh, ability for businesses to discriminate against individuals. Let's not forget that there was an uproar in the faith community, too. Absolutely. It's that uh, many, many faiths in Indiana were offended by that measure. It's true. There's... Um, we, we, this coalition worked and I'm proud of this effort to remove any references to discriminate. We couldn't, we couldn't have the votes to repeal, but we removed all references that might look like discrimination from the law. They passed a watered down version of the law. There's then, it was like a Thursday morning announcement to announce the fix, the RIFRA fix. And then it becomes what none of us wanted. It becomes an, an event on national news. And here's this, here's how this involves Chris Douglas. I won't name names. Legislative leaders who had supported the original law and allowed it to pass through both houses very fast, and then who had at least allowed the fix to go through, stood up saying, nothing to see here. This is what we intended the whole time. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and those people like me are standing there very embarrassed. Anyway, it becomes an almost Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment. I'm not exaggerating. When here's Chris Douglas standing up to give testimony, and uh, it was, you know, for, for me, it was a powerful moment because you brought some history and some humility to it. And I'm going to ask you just to maybe paraphrase what you said, you know, on, on national TV that morning. Well, I think the, the first thing that uh, I did, as you may remember, is I introduced myself. And I introduced myself in all the dimensions. And that meant uh, uh, Republican, former military, and a businessman, and uh, uh, I can't remember whether I mentioned member of the faith community, uh, uh, but then I also, for the gay community, spelled out what my background was as a founder of uh, the the, uh, uh, Rainbow Chamber of Commerce and the Interfaith Coalition on Non-Discrimination and Indiana Equality, and and, uh, that uh, our business had been the first to do many important things in the gay community, in the first to sponsor mainstream business to sponsor a pride celebration, the first mainstream business to uh, advertise in the city's gay publications, and uh, um, so and and then I think the fact that uh, uh, I had been fired and that I had been fired for coming out and uh, doing an act, an act that uh, attempting to benefit the uh, the community, and so. Uh, that established, I think, this a, a very important basis for uh, credibility for everyone. Uh, and I was trying to s- speak to everyone through all of those different tribal connections. Uh, but then the next was really the, the background as a Hoosier. And uh, that uh, I think we have a great state. I think uh, that uh, we've got traditions in Indiana that are loving and tolerant and... Uh, uh, that those traditions rose, yeah. and uh, that we we saw business and and faith and education all rise uh, in defense of the LGBT uh, community, saying this is not who we are, and uh, um, I think that 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 was the message. It was it was it was this Rifra thing is not who we are. Uh, uh, who we are is uh, uh, people who can come together who have been um, who, are, who are loving people and uh, uh, will move forward to affect the kinds of protections against discrimination that we now know that the majority of Hoosiers want to have in place. The press conference ends within a few hours. Then Governor Mike Pence signs the bill. Um, what were the reactions like among your friends and contacts, positive, negative, neutral, well, I must say, I, overwhelmingly positive. In fact, uh, if if there was, it was, I must say, it was quite a validating point, <laughs> because maybe there was nobody else that could have stood up there and said the things I said that well, had so many tribal connections. Myself and our colleagues were like, I didn't know you that well. We were like, Chris Douglas just saved our ass. <laughs> Is that right? Because <laughs> if you had not said that, you would have had, um, you know, legislative leadership that had allowed it to pass. You know, organizations like ours and a lot of the business community could be accused of being kind of Johnny come lately. It's like, Oh, we've been talking about these issues for decades. And now when you're afraid it's going to hit yeah. businesses, bottom lines, so there was a lot of that. And there, there, there was that, um, the, the, the perspective that you provided, um, it, which it was, was that yeah. the fix was the first time in Indiana law that we incorporated sexual orientation and gender identity 
into the protection of rights. That's right. And so it was a, it was a very uh, important moment yeah. in, in Indiana. And, and yet, and I'm, I'm being, for people listening who aren't as familiar, and we definitely weren't turning cartwheels because a lot of damage had been done in, in that previous week mm-hmm. plus. You know, there's no, no question. I remember David Letterman on his show and part of the monologue saying, this is not the Indiana I grew up in. Yeah. It's just like, ugh. Yeah, right, right. Um, and, um, and so, but that's a, just a, as a note yeah. there, I mean, David Letterman, I mean, you know, he used to bag groceries just down, you right. know, a few, a few blocks, blocks from here. And, and when he said that it's, it's not the Indiana I grew up in either. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, uh, and I know in, in some, so in some ways I think, um, that's why it's just tragic to hear the story of you literally getting fired from your job, you know, um, in some ways, uh, society has progressed. There are more protections in place everywhere, including Indiana, but gender, um, sexual orientation, gender identity, yet our politics have become more polarized. Um, do you still consider yourself a Republican in 2022, or do you call yourself an independent? Or how? Uh, I have not characterized myself, except that, as we know, in Indiana, to be a, uh, to, the way that you declare a party is by uh, going into a primary and casting a ballot in that primary, right. and uh, 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 this year I did not go into a primary. Is that right? And uh, now there have been years and prior where I have been so disgusted uh, that I've gone. I've gone into the primary. I have pulled the ballot. I have walked over and I have inserted the ballot without checking any of the names because I was so disgusted. <laughs> but nobody could say I wasn't Republican. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's been important because at this, it is interesting to note, I, you know, it's for all of my being uh, uh, a gadfly for, for making people uncomfortable in, in that, you know, I, I've served on the state Republican platform yes. committee three times. Yes. And each time I think it has been uh, when, uh, uh, we'll say, more sober forces within the party felt we need to have a voice in there that is raising an objection to some of the things that are going on. And so uh, the first time that uh, I went into uh, a state platform committee meeting uh, uh, and we voted on a a platform and I objected to the language within it, I I remember specifically Jim Bopp, uh, this nationally known uh, attorney, shouting from the other end of the table, why are you even here? And uh, uh, I... Uh, so I left, and so I, the, the, I failed in my in, in my participation in the vote. My points of view didn't carry, and I raised my hand and said I would like my name removed from this committee, from this platform committee, because I did not want to be associated with the words of that platform. Yeah, and so then uh, I was invited again, and uh, I I uh, this time. Rather than being the sole voice in the room, I had support. But once again, it didn't carry. And once again, I rose, raised my hand and asked to be removed. And then the last time they invited me to be on the platform committee, I said, well, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> Preemptive. I mean, I, I, know, we, you know, I know why I'm there. I am there to, to, to try and uh, get some reason into, the, into this committee and into the platform. And... Uh, uh, all because I was Republican, and nobody could challenge those credentials. And in a way, I have remained Republican in spite of the fact that I don't think uh, uh, I don't think it is to personal benefit. Uh, yeah. And uh, I have uh, it is it has been the ability to speak to some people, and there to. F- they're feeling that uh, that ultimately I was a member of the tribe, and they're listening. And I think yeah. I have had some influence, continued to have some influence. Absolutely. But I think the I think the, the situation has become particularly, frankly, with regard to uh, the Trump era. I could not possibly have been louder in opposition yeah. to uh, uh, the the Trump candidacy in 2016. And as a, uh, I I feel very strongly that he was an incompetent businessman and a compromised. Uh, ethically compromised and 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 I felt compromised by his business dealings with an adversary of our democracy so I felt he was a very dangerous man and uh, have have as events have transpired I think all of my concerns uh, came to fruition 
So what do you do when that seems to be the uh, the fervor that has gripped the party? Yeah. Is there a point at which you finally say, I can't do any more good here? And it, it's interesting to note that when when Lilly and Cummins said, you know, after this last legislative se- session, well, that's it, we're going to have to start uh, looking elsewhere. Uh, uh, I, you know, it's like, well, if Lilly and Cummins can't have an impact on these people, uh, who can? And uh, can I really? And uh, uh, so that that is... Uh, I'm deeply troubled by many things that are that yeah. are even now uh, being done. And uh, uh, do I do I surrender all cli- tribal claim when, in fact, I feel very strongly that I'm more in touch with the roots and history of the party than any of these people? I think so, and that, that's a good segue because because the people listening. You, you, you get engaged in, you know, this, you know, this subject matter on national issues and things like that. But I do want to bring this up. You also take issues and I'm going to, I want to talk about your, the history of the tax code project. You also engage with issues that people might not consider controversial, that you frame them in a way that are endlessly fascinating. (laughs) And, um, and, and one of them is a project and people can find uh, a site that you've created with video content called When Capitalism Worked. When, when Capitalism Worked.com. And, um, and can you, so, so I, guess, I guess where I was going with this is clearly you've channeled um, in, this, in this divisive time, you've, you've also spent a lot of time channeling your um, uh, work in constructive areas, you know what I mean, to try to make a change. Um, uh, can you talk about whencapitalismworked.com? And I'll encourage listeners to check it out. Because this one, you, you told me about this a couple of years ago, and it was like a left hook. I had just never, <laughs> thought, I'd never thought about this before. Well, I, I think I began talking about this 10 years ago, and it, it, uh, it was in the midst of uh, one of the big national debates on uh, the budget and taxation. And I became aware of these forces that were working towards ever lower taxes, and I wondered, well, what, uh, uh, you know, I thought, you know, mom and dad went to Indiana University. Uh, they graduated debt-free, uh, uh, paying $75 a semester uh, in the 1950s, which was what people paid then. And then uh, dad went on into the Air Force as an officer, and mom became a teacher, two government jobs. And I thought, well, how did we pay for that? Uh, so I went back to the tax code of the 1950s, and it was jaw-dropping. It was that, uh, well, uh, and this has been my party trick, it's to, to walk up to, uh, to people and say, do you have any idea what the top marginal income tax rate was in the 1950s? And uh, the answer is nobody does. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll ask, I'll say, well, guess. And uh, uh, very often they'll start, well, 14 15% uh, higher higher and that you know we'll get up to 50 percent and i'll say higher and they'll say no you're kidding and then i'll and we'll just keep knowing well the fact is the top marginal income tax rate was over 90 percent and uh then the estate tax was 77 percent and so i think for most people it's very difficult to imagine how those tax rates work they don't make any sense uh uh why would anybody work is sort of the idea right well as a business owner it became immediately apparent to me well, it's like, look, okay, first of all, if the, if the tax rate progresses up to where you're paying over 90% of, the, of a dollar in taxes for a dollar that you take out of business, are you going to take the dollar out of the business? And every business owner would say the answer is no. If you're going to get taxed at over 90% for the dollar that you take out of the business, you're going to keep it in the business. Well, what are you going to do with it? Well, you're going to uh, pay people better. You might hire more people. You might uh, engage in more research and development. You might provide employee benefits. You might provide on-the-job training. You're doing all of these things to add to the value of your business. And uh, with time, then, you, you can take that value out at a lower capital gains tax rate. So the uh, the high tax rates of the day encouraged a more functional private economy where uh, we weren't having the situation where you've got families that are worth now $200 billion uh, who are getting maybe $3 billion a year in, in dividend income taxed at lower rates than working people. Uh, that didn't exist. And, and the source <laughs> of this, I think, whereas 
you know, if I had no more context, I might look at look back at this as like government largesse post World War II. But but your one of your central um, arguments, if I'm not mistaken, is no, these were pretty intelligent economists um, trying to drive businesses to these uh, longer term healthy behaviors. Right, and it it uh, it it was use it or lose it was the message of the tax code. Use it or lose it. And uh, if, if there, there's a point at which uh, uh, if money is just accumulating and it's never going to get sp- in these deep pockets that it's never going to get spent again, it isn't contributing to consumption, it isn't helping driving, drive the economy, it's just going into share buybacks and mergers and acquisitions. Uh, uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, people of, of uh, average workers are seeing no wage increases and are not therefore contributing to the growth of the economy. Uh, uh, that's not acceptable. And so it was a tax code that said, we don't need government taking the money. In fact, what it was saying is, if you will use the money, we won't take the money. (laughs) So it was producing a more functional private sector, a sector that was not government-owned, but more functional. Do you feel like, this one is fascinating to me, because I feel like it, in the dominant narratives of our two parties it doesn't have a place right now no it doesn't you know on the democrat democrat side they talk about things like green new deal and things like that which i think i I see um from an aspirational perspective i see what they're trying to do i have my doubts about government's ability to implement it successfully then on the right you've got the you know the the opposite and that's why again i'm fascinated with this is like where where could and i'm sure you've thought about this where could you create a space where this is debated and considered? Right. I mean, it is. Uh, uh, we we can say we can say we've we've been witness to the collapse of two unusable systems at least. Laissez-faire capitalism collapsed. It was it collapsed in the end of the twenties. It impoverished households. It created a, a, a decade of depression. Uh, uh, laissez-faire capitalism is a proven non-starter. Uh, communism is a proven non-starter. It's it, it's a flip side. It is a it also just produces vast inequities and ultimately stasis and collapse. And so what we had was we had this middle road that leveraged the strengths of capitalism and made sure that the rewards were widely shared with the population that then became vested in it, and uh, uh, but without it being government owned. And uh, uh, so. Where do we find that kind of? Well, the, unfortunately, uh, you know, it used to be the Republican Party offered that kind of leadership, and in the 1950s, it was the Republicans and Democrats together that were providing that kind of leadership. But uh, now, I think uh, the Republican Party has been taken over after these these the, this, these huge pockets of money failed to get control of the Libertarian Party. They turned and took over the Republican Party, and so with unlimited campaign spending, that they basically suffocated the ability of uh, Republicans, uh, uh, of anybody of good faith, I think, in the Republican Party to advocate for anything other than the lowest possible taxes. Do you think, um, this is this is way out there, but, you know, the the growing popularity of uh, rank, rank choice voting and things like that in other states, do you think that a third party could emerge that could embrace these more, you know, pragmatic... Uh, it's Positive. such a, you know, it is, we're in such a bad place as a country because I think it is so difficult to uh, change the dynamics between the two parties. And uh, so, for instance, ranked choice voting, we can all sit there and say, well, that would make sense. That would get really the, the candidate that people really most want. Well, the, the fact is, is that I think we have a lot of forces in the country that are determined to prevent that. Yes. <laughs> they don't want uh, candidates that represent any kind of a majority point of view. They're, they're, they're ant- in my view, they have no faith in democracy. Their, their interest is in controlling democracy, not, right. not persuading democracy. Yeah. Um, now, yet, with all... Oh, so when capitalism worked, you can watch the videos, and um, that, that feels like something... Is, that, is there a possible partnership like with a think tank? I mean, it's, it feels like something that... Uh, could be part of a national campaign. Well, the interesting thing is, that, you know, as I've, as I've said, we're sort of our own little, in some ways, our own little think tank here, uh, but that doesn't get any attention. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. you know, it's I've been putting those ideas out there and uh, certainly sharing them with politicians. And uh, uh, I produced these thinking that uh, perhaps I would get some uh, traction in social media. Well, if you're not out really promoting yourself, 
it's you know it's crickets and so it, and I've never been great on the idea I, I've got to get out and promote myself so I've got to figure out uh, how to uh, how to get this message better heard do you um this is a and you've been really generous with your time and, and I always um that just uh, it hasn't been an hour yet but it's flown by um I do want to ask you a couple questions kind of looking ahead I think um again you come across as a um an optimistic person, you know, you're grappling with some pretty tough subjects, but you come across as someone who still had, adopts a hopeful a viewpoint. And, you know, I wonder, um, uh, the things we're talking about, the polarization that exists, kind of the forces to try to break up tribal um, thinking and bring people together. I do see signs of hope when I look at young people. Now, I think that it feels like there's going to be a generation bounce back, but I think, you know, if you and I take care of ourselves, it'll be when we're quite a bit older, uh-huh. you know, because and, and this, this is an unscientific sampling, but uh-huh. it's like we have some young people who come to work for us, and I'm just like, where do we find these people? Uh-huh. Their attitudes toward diversity and inclusion are very different. Mm-hmm. They're not as partisan. Um, they're more um, altruistic might not be the right word, but they're looking more at the community value Mm -hmm. is, is, is more important to their lives. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, I wonder if that generation could, you know, impact, if maybe they'll look at what they'll look at our political dynamic today and rebel against that, you know, I don't know. Do you think let's, let's hope, uh, I've got this, you know, what keeps me going is, is I've, I've had various life mottos accumulate, uh, over time, and all of them still functional, but the, the latest one uh, in, in my latest decade is we do what we can, and uh, we can't control the world, and uh, uh, there's only so much we can do, but when we say we do what we can, it means we don't do more than we can, but we also don't do less than we can, yeah. and uh, in the end, the only thing that, it, I, I think ultimately, really, it is a stoic philosophy, in the end, the only thing that we can do is really control ourselves. And uh, I think it's it, it is a, a civic responsibility to to do our best, and uh, so that 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 keeps the chin up no matter what's happening. It's yeah. it's it's we do what we can. So what 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 that we haven't mentioned gets Chris Douglas up in the morning. But I mean, I'm saying beyond loved ones, serving your clients, you know, raising the standard of the intellectual discourse. So there are other other elements of your life that we haven't mentioned that that kind of help you. Um, do what you can. Well, uh, uh, if I divorce myself from all of the above, uh, and one thing, by the way, I want to note is that we as a business have been uh, I- I- extremely supportive of uh, uh, organizations in town, whether it's the it's Trinity Haven, the, the, the home for uh, uh, youth have been alienated from the families, or Indiana Youth Group, or uh, uh, the Damien Center, uh, or now we, we've, we're, we're a sponsor of the f- season at the Phoenix Theater. We've named the stage at the Fonseca Theater, and we're uh, this is not public yet, but we're naming the stage at uh, the Broderpool Storefront Theater. Wow! All of these organizations being, I think, dedicated to the community and to the kind of community that we need to have. So uh, uh, I must say they're all very active with all sorts of interesting things going on, and that gets you drawn into all sorts of interesting things. But if I were to draw, if I were to divorce myself from all of the above, it is uh, uh, nature. <laughs> it is uh, 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 my mind goes to some land out on Sugar Creek that uh, runs from uh, Sugar Creek runs from uh, Crawfordsville down to Turkey Run State Park. It's it's great for kayaking and fly fishing. I think it's a treasure that people aren't aware of. And uh, 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 when I have, that's where my mind wanders uh, yeah. to get away from it. That's great. Um, we'll have to do a part two <laughs> this just when we have more time. But it's re- it's really it's it's really great to uh, spend some time with you. And um, I would I would encourage everybody to check out when capitalism worked dot com. Um, I just you know thanks thanks for your support for my day job and on, for, and hey, on, and on me personally. And so. I, I also want to say uh, we became members of the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce because of the uh, events of 2015 and, uh, and thereafter and feeling very strongly that uh, the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce was uh, a really significant force for good and under your leadership. Well, and uh, so uh, uh, what do we do? Well, we need to support that, and that's why we became members of that's, the chamber. Your your company and your your support 
you know, personally, that's, that's like fuel you know, for, <laughs> for the mission. It, re- it really, it really yeah. is. And I just, it's, it's, it's meant a lot to um, me and my team uh, personally that, that, um, you, you know, you have a lot of things competing for your time that you spend your time there. So thanks a lot. Um, Chris Douglas, it's great to be with you this afternoon. I, I look forward to doing a part two. That would be fun. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye.